Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Platform Podcast. We're doing something a little different today. This is our first foray into audio only. We're calling it the Platform Station House Audio Series. We realized that not everybody can come to our platform location and watch trains and talk to us. But with this format, we're able to bring the show to the people we want to talk to. And that way we have more flexibility and we can bring you more stories. Today, I am on location with Ron Bowman and Brad Jolliffe. Brad, where are we sitting today? We're sitting in uh, Business Car 24, Canadian Pacific Railway Business Car 24. Built 1929 at Angus Shops, uh, currently uh, stored uh, where I work, which is the Ontario Southland Railway. So we are inside, inside. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> we are inside CP24, and we are inside the OSR shop with a beautiful view out the windows of all of the OSR equipment. We've got a snow plow out the one window. We've got, looks like an RS23 out here. Uh... What else we got around here? Uh, looks like an SW1200 RS. Yeah, GP9. Uh, that's a former Sioux line unit here. Correct. No yes. DB. No dynamic brake, says Ron. Yeah, spoken like a true railroader. Okay, and uh, Brad, how is it that you came to acquire this car? Uh, well, CP uh, started retiring a lot of their business cars in the late 70s and the 80s, thinning the fleet out. And uh, this particular series of cars, there was seven others that were virtually identical to this one. They were general superintendent's cars. And this was one of the series of cars they decided to retire. And this one was uh, in Toronto up for sale and I found out about it and uh, was able to purchase it. And at the time we were just, uh, Myself and Ron was also involved with uh, starting up the Port Stanley uh, Terminal Railway, a uh, tourist railway, so I had a place to keep it. And, and so, Port Stanley is on the north shore of Lake Erie? Yep. South of London, Ontario? Yeah, and it's part of the old uh, London and Port Stanley uh, interurban line. Okay. So the, uh, the seven miles from St. Thomas to Port Stanley uh, was uh, up for abandonment and we were able to purchase it from Canadian National. Yeah, that's how it all started. So this car was built in 1929 and it spent its career in the Quebec division, is that correct? It was originally assigned to the um, general superintendent for the Quebec division and of course he would use it to inspect all his trackage in the province of Quebec. Originally named Quebec and then uh, I forget exactly what year the names were removed and they just received a number. This particular car was number 24 but I remember it best and probably Ron does as well as being the superintendent's car in London, Ontario for many, many years. Uh, and the car seems to be, it seems that you've taken great pains to keep it fairly original. Oh yes, it's all, it's all pretty much original. Uh, all the original furnishings, uh, of course, it, it's been upgraded over the years. In the 70s, I believe uh, CP hired uh, Eaton's department store uh, to come in and spruce it up so it received new carpet 
uh, new covers over the furnishings, uh, new drapes, th that kind of thing. But, but all the, these are the original furnishings. One of the things that I think is really neat of, with this car is the fact that the back door go, leading out to the platform actually says in gold lettering, built by Canadian Pacific Railway Angus Shops. That is a really neat detail uh, of, of this car. Okay, so Brad, we're going to get more about you and your railway career. I want to go to Ron. Ron Bowman, thanks for joining us today. Ron, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your uh, the Coles notes of your railway career, and then you can tell us how it is that you came to meet Brad. Okay, so uh, in 1973, I was out of high school and looking for a job. My father knew a CN yard foreman. So I uh, managed through him to get a job with CN in Toronto. However, I had a girlfriend in London. I would rather have been in London, so I was living in a rooming house in Toronto. I heard CP was hiring, so I applied. And out of the blue in June of 73, uh, they called and they were desperate for help. And so I started working there, <coughs> excuse me. And that was uh, a start of a 37 year career. Uh, throughout my career, I worked uh, different jobs. Uh, eventually, I went to management in Calgary and head office in 1996 and uh, left there in 2000, uh, somewhat disenchanted, worked for another 10 years and then retired in 2010. My early career involved bidding on jobs that, uh, well, I didn't stand for the main line, so the main line was the most lucrative uh, work that you could get, but if you were a junior individual, you're usually forced down the branch line. So um, I did work around Woodstock quite a bit, and then um, I finally stood for the main line, but in 1977, they put me in with a, a, a conductor that was rather hard to live with. So I decided, I'd just been classed as a conductor, so I decided to bid a job, an outpost job at Guelph Junction. Lo and behold, I got the job. With four years of service, I was the youngest conductor, I think, uh, in quite a while. A lot of the old guys, some of them worked 10, 12 years, never had a job as conductor. So anyway, I, I started working that job for one time card change for in 1977. That was from the end of uh, April to the end of October. Sometime during that, uh, we used to run up to uh, Guelph and uh, switch the industries up there in the afternoon. One day uh, going up there with the 8021, uh, that particular day, Brad was a bit of a fan and Brad was taking pictures and uh, we somehow spoke to each other and that was the start of uh, decades of friendship and uh, interestingly the 8021 ended up, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it ended up on OSR. Yep, that's correct. So, okay. yeah. so that was kind of an interesting, uh, the, the, uh, the, the technical uh, uh, manifestation of the small world syndrome somehow. Yeah. We should say for our audience that when we were referring to these engine numbers, these are mostly uh, Canadian Pacific uh, locomotives. Right. And you, what, a lot of the stories we're going to talk about happened on the London division of the Canadian Pacific right. Railway, which is territory that would have been from Windsor, Ontario into Toronto. Just for our audience, we have we, we never know where people are listening, so true. And, they'll and be wondering what you know. Some of these, they I mean, and they can look on online yeah. for maps and so on. So there was a there were a number of branch lines that radiated uh, out of Woods the Woodstock area. We had a line to St. Mary's, a line to St. Thomas, the original uh, Credit Valley main line, and a line to Port Burwell, and we had lines from Hamilton to Godridge. And that intersected the Galt sub at Guelph Junction. So, um, and this was all part of the Canadian the, Pacific the, London, the London, London, London division. division. That's correct. 
Okay. Um, and so you met Brad as a then young rail fan with a camera. Yep. While you were on an RS-23, the AD-21, which is now part of the roster of the railway that, that which uh, Brad Brad currently works for. Yeah, so that's I think that's kind of an interesting uh, an interesting thing, how everything seems connected. It's like a six degrees of separation yeah, exactly. uh, idea. So. so Brad, that's a great segue. Tell, uh, tell our audience sort of the Coles notes of your of from that fateful day well, of yeah. meeting Ron. Uh, I, de up I definitely day. remember that day, and uh, <laughs> I have some pictures to prove it. Uh, actually, a couple of them I think have been published. Um, so I ended up, um, I was still going to school, and uh, when I graduated from uh, University of Western Ontario, I decided to try and get a job as a, as a trainman. On, so I at the time, the London Division headquarters were at uh, Richmond Street in London, the old CPR station upstairs. And uh, I just went up and, and asked if they were hiring and I kept bugging them and either showing up in person or calling. And eventually I did get hired in April of 81. And uh, I would have been hired as a brakeman? As a, as a trainman, yep. And then after about Roughly three years, you got classed as a conductor. And then in 1980, October, I believe, of 87, I went into the uh, engineer's training program and got qualified uh, roughly a year later in the end of 1988. And uh, I continued working at CP until 19, April of 1992. At which point I I left CP and hired on at the Godrich Exeter Railway, which was um, uh, one of the first uh, freight short line railways in Ontario. Uh, uh, at the time, uh, CN was looking to sell their Godrich subdivision from Stratford to Godrich and their Exeter subdivision from Clinton Junction down to Centralia. So. I wanted to work for a short line, so I was able to get a job there. And I worked for uh, them. At the time, they were owned by Railtex uh, out of San Antonio, Texas. And uh, I worked for them from April of 92 until uh, roughly April of 97, so five years. Five years. You had enough snow in five years to, yeah. to yes. do you for a whole lifetime? It was interesting. Yeah. Uh, the Godrich and Exeter, for those who aren't familiar, as square in the southern Ontario snow belt. And uh, at some point, we're going to talk about plow extras and working plow trains. And I know Brad's got a ton of experience with that, especially in the Godrich days. Okay, so after Godrich Exeter, then where'd you go from there? Uh, well, I, I spent one year from 97 till 98 working for a tourist railway out of Waterloo, Ontario. I called the Waterloo St. Jacobs Railway as operations manager there. And then um, I hired on in 1998 with uh, Ontario Southland Railway, and I've been uh, working for Ontario Southland ever since, up to and including now I'm still working. Okay. And your business card says vice president. Apparently, that's what it says, yeah. yes. The, that means you're the guy who brings the donuts in the morning. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Were you hired on OSR as VP, or did no, you? No, I, I hired on as a, initially. I was I was uh, hired, I believe, part time 
as a either engineer or conductor, I was qualified as both. And uh, okay, I didn't know that. I'm learning that about you today. So you actually started in running trades. Oh yes, in OSR. Oh yes, oh, okay. yeah. And I worked on our Guelph Junction Railway for about, I believe, about nine years until uh, Ontario Southland acquired the uh, the Canadian Pacific St. Thomas sub and the old Port Burwell sub, and then I was asked to come over here to to manage this operation. Okay. And, and you're been, still working today. Yeah. Yeah, he said with a big smile. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gives our audience a great picture into your backgrounds. Uh, so that makes you old guys. You're official old guys. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's true. But only Ron looks at it, right, Brett? <laughs> well, I feel it sometimes. Yeah. So what we want to talk about today is I wanted to talk to you guys about what most people would refer to, and I think it's more of an American term, is timetable and train order operation. I think in Canada we refer to it more as uh, being in train order territory. You guys can clear me up on that if I'm wrong. Um, train orders by today's uh, measure is a fairly arcane thing. A, a lot of young rail fans and model railroaders may have heard the term, but I don't think um, they're really all that familiar with what it was and how it worked and, and why it was and what it was replaced with and sort of all of that. So for the next little bit, I thought we would have a chat about train orders and maybe Ron, you can, you can both, you know, just sort of go back and forth telling us about train orders and your experience with it. But why don't we start at number one with what is train order operation or train order territory? Well, the, the basis of the operation was the timetable. So you had scheduled trains. So a train had to uh, either be authorized by train order to run extra or be a, a numbered train in this, on a schedule. The distinction between train orders and uh, what you use now, which I believe is track warrants in the states and uh, clearances here, train orders gave you information relating to your train uh, if you're on a schedule or if you're running extra. And you had to use that information to figure out how to get over the road. Um, nowadays they just tell you run from here to here take the siding run from here to here and so it's quite a bit easier but with train orders <coughs> for example um, you might be on a given train and we had the the, the basic premise is that you had class of trains so uh, first class trains typically would have been passenger trains um, we had a few on CP but uh, they were relegated to in my career to Guelph Junction the GO trains um, second class trains had priority over third and fourth class trains and extra trains. So if you're on a, say a fourth class train heading, uh, I'll just try and use the example of, uh, of, uh, you were heading west on a fourth class train, you had to clear second class trains at the time that they had to leave the station, uh, any given station. So if you were approaching a station at 1800 and he was due to leave there at 1810 or 1815, you had to go in the siding there. Train orders might tell you that he uh, waits at that station for another hour or whatever. The train orders um, schedules remain in effect for 12 hours, so uh, the level of complexity you can you can well imagine. The train might be six or seven hours late. Uh, this particular train, and the train order didn't necessarily denote what freight was on the train. It was the authority to run. So typically they did, but not always. So uh, a good example of that would be. Um, in London, 56 was a schedule 
late afternoon. It might be used to run the Aberdeen turn from Quebec Street to Guelph Junction, or it might be an extra eastbound freight that had come out of Windsor as an 84. Um, and Brad, I mean, I can uh, uh, defer to you on, uh, on that, but that I think it gives a rough idea of how they work. Um, train orders had to be handed up to you on the road too, so you may have seen pictures of uh, the operator out there with a hoop and the crew has to scoop it up and that would they would give you new information as you progress down the road at the open train order offices. Another set of orders. So really, with train orders, you could pretty much run the railway with a timetable and a watch. That's correct. And that's another thing. The watches became, uh, they were very important then and we had to have our watches checked, uh, I think at one time it was every six months, but um, and then eventually they didn't even care what kind of watch you had to have a certain grade of watch. and. I remember one time my watch had uh, broke, uh, something happened, it wasn't working and I had a Timex with me and somebody from Transport Canada got on a ride with us and I was absolutely terrified that I was going to get in trouble for not having an approved watch. <laughs> but the guy never asked, I had this Timex that would beep and everything else. <laughs> so on the London division, the dispatching offices were in London uh, at that time. In the station at Richmond right. Street, yeah. On the second floor. Up, upstairs. Yeah, uh, were they upstairs or were they on the main floor? I don't think they were upstairs. I think they were on the main floor. And the reason I remember that is I uh, I was involved in an accident on the Port Burwell subdivision, uh, right uh, within a few hundred feet of where we're sitting right now, uh, as it turned out a fatal accident. And I was a conductor on that train in 1979, and I had to take the accident report. The chief dispatcher wanted me to deliver it to uh, to him if I could. So uh, when I drove back, he knew that we most of the crews lived in London. So when I drove back to London, I drove down to Richmond Street and knocked on the door, and he came out to get it. So, but I never, I was never in there. So, so the railway had a timetable that would pertain, that would list these subdivisions, and then in that timetable would be scheduled trains that were given a second, third, or fourth class. I, I miss, I'm skipping yeah. first because we know that yeah. the passenger trains were pretty yeah. much null Correct. and void by by your time. So you had a timetable with scheduled trains and you had a watch and you had a rule book and the this is also in the day before radios. Yeah, often it was. Yeah, we, So yeah. the dispatcher was connected to stations along the way by telephone, correct? That's correct. There were tel telephones all the way along. Um, when you got to Toronto terminals, the, uh, the, the dispatcher could talk to you on the radio. And the operators at uh, Woodstock, Galt, uh, East End, uh, Longwood, they all had radios. Um, however, and Guelph Junction, of course. Um, but uh, the dispatcher themselves, uh, they were unable to speak with you directly unless you went to the phone. Until you got into the terminal, some of them could talk to you down there. But So, uh, yeah, sometimes you went to the phone to get more information. And the, the other thing we should talk about, timetables give you other information as well that's pertinent to the operation. So... Timetables would tell you the distance between stations, uh, speed limits. So the distance between stations might come into uh, your deliberations if you had an order to uh, a certain train was going to wait here, wait there. You had to sort of have a good idea in your mind of how long it took to go to that next station based on the speed. And it may not even be the speed limit. It may be the speed you were capable of making if you had a heavy train, didn't have very good power. Or, so it was... There's all kinds of elements to it that are that are now gone yeah. from the operation. Brad, here's a question for you. If I've got a timetable and I have a watch and I have a rule book 
and let's say I'm a conductor on the London division in 1981 or two when you first started why do I need train orders uh, given to me by an operator at a station if I've got a timetable a watch and a rule book why where do the what do train orders themselves do well bec because often things would change uh, on on route and uh, so in order to avoid lengthy date lengthy delays that you may incur based solely on the timetable information or your previous train orders of course they could they could change the information that uh, you know th that so that you could advance further if you're on an eastbound say get get a couple sidings further east or well, yeah and you also needed the orders to tell you what train you were so for example, if you're called for 916, they might run you as second 56 or something, but typically could be 916's freight, but you're yeah. running as fit number 56. Yeah. And and uh, the other thing is if you had extra trains, extra trains would uh, have to have train orders to authorize them to run as well, uh, telling you where you're running from and to to and from, should say. And the other thing that train orders give that we, we sort of didn't mention yet was if you have slow order in the track, let's say they just changed out a a crossing and it's 10 mile an hour and whatever they'd have to tell you that in a train or they had no other way to tell you those things or if men were working because it's a them. temporary condition that's it's outside not the, of the norm yeah the timetable doesn't contemplate those things so but typically now you can correct me if I'm wrong as I remember it on the Galt sub a lot of the eastbound trains ran on their schedules whereas more often than not a lot of the westbounds were run as extras yeah, there were schedules uh, there for westbounds, but there they were often, schedules yeah. for like number nine thirty-seven, uh, number nine twenty-seven. But a lot of times they were just annulled. Yeah, they didn't use them, and which they is would just run you as an extra. Except I remember with certain dispatchers, especially on weekends, <laughs> they would run uh, sometimes four or five sections of nine thirty-seven, and of course all but the last section had to display uh, green signals. Right, and green flags. Green flags, mean, yeah. green signals, yeah. yeah. And that was... Which was important to, uh, if you're an eastbound in a siding and 937 had right over, uh, you had to pay attention to those signals because you couldn't leave until, until the last section arrived. Yeah, and I think more than one time people have almost got into trouble in those particular situations too. There were signal whistle signals that had to be issued as well, and the older guys knew them off by heart, but some of the newer guys uh, used them infrequently, and uh, they had to sort of think for a minute or get the book out, what, what is the signal I used to acknowledge it. We should let our audience know too that most of the London division was single track main with passing sightings at certain intervals along along the way. There was a portion that was double tracked, but a lot of it was was single track. Correct. And the other the other interesting thing is the double track was movement by signal signal indication. And what that meant was once you got to Guelph Junction, it didn't matter what class you were, you were home free. So if you were on a fourth class train and you could keep ahead of a second class train, uh, once you got to Guelph Junction, you were golden. That was it. You were going right to Toronto ahead of them. You guys have mentioned a lot, and I know that when I first started looking into train orders and train order operation, because I my model railroad is set on the London Division in 1980, so if I wanted to operate prototypically, I needed to understand what train orders were. And I know when I came to, to you two guys to start talking about it, my head was swimming. 
because mm. there's all sorts of things that we've talked about here to unpack. We've sort of sprinkled the salt and pepper of train orders on our audience today. We've talked about classes and green lights and sections and running extra and things like that. So uh, thank you guys for sitting with me and uh, we're going to have you back and we're going to pick this up. Sound good? Sounds great. I'll bring donuts. That always gets Brad here. It gets any railroader anywhere. <laughs> Thanks guys. We'll talk again. And thank you everyone for joining us on this very first episode of The Platform, the Station House audio series. Via detector, milepost 5.51. No alarm. Detector out.